We are back. Another episode of the Protectors Podcast. And I had, you know, Rob, I'm joined by Rob today's special co-host. We have Jack Carr. But the thing is, I Rob was like, hey, how many times has Jack been on a show? And I'm like, I don't know. So I went back. Jack, this is your fourth appearance, plus our little mini interview when, when the Pratt News came out that... Right. Breaking news. Breaking news in the Protectors podcast. Or yes. And, and thank you, David, for being so understanding. And everybody who knows David, the, the man behind the scenes of Jack Carr. But thank you for understanding that always. But Jack, welcome back to the show. I'm super excited to have you on today. I'm such big news coming in your future. And I, I, I'm just I'm excited for you, man. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. David Brown at Simon and Schuster. He is the, uh, the man. And I, yeah, it, uh, I have such a great team over there with Emily Bessler, Emily Bessler books, Atria Simon and Schuster, uh, and David, everybody there has just been so fantastic to me. I just couldn't, could, I just feel so fortunate, but, uh, but yeah, hitting the road here in the blood coming out on the 17th and then the show terminalist coming out on July 1st with Chris Pratt. So it's a, it's a busy season as they say. It is. And I, I really appreciate you always taking your time for the show. And today we're joined by Rob. Rob is the co-host of Fight Like Hell podcast. You can also find him on Saver 6. He's a combat veteran and he's a really good friend. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm stoked to be here. Got a couple questions for you, Jack, that I hopefully can hit on some topics that maybe you haven't covered recently because I've you know, obviously as a fan know that you're getting ready to release your new book, which I'm stoked about. I already pre-ordered as well. And I was listening to some of your uh, recent podcasts that you've done with like Andy Stump and uh, just listening to your, your new podcast too, uh, which is called Danger Close for those of you who want to join in and listen to Jack Carr, give his mind and actually like interview people. So hopefully I can come up with some good interview questions for you. Yeah, man, let's do it. Absolutely. Thanks for doing this, guys. In the blood. I love that. You know, this whole thing with, I can't wait for the series, and I'm probably going to end up binging it, and it's going to be one of those things where I'm like keeping my mouth shut because I know there's going to be some differences between the book and everything else, but, you know, that's, it's Hollywood. It's Hollywood. You're, you're going to a different audience. So I'm excited. When Are you going to do, like, the whole premiere red carpet thing or – yeah, there's a date on the calendar for a premiere, but I don't know what that really means. I didn't want to be the yeah. new guy seeing, oh, seeming over eager to ask about the uh, the premiere. So, uh, hey, whatever it is, um, I'm in. You know, it doesn't doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, it's interesting when you say Hollywood because it's not quote unquote Hollywood, although there are differences from the book for sure. But I was shocked at uh, I guess I was I wasn't shocked because there's a lot of trust when I handle this this over to Antoine Fuqua and Chris Pratt to to, to do, and now we're all three executive producers on it. But uh, you do have to guard against the quote unquote Hollywood side of things because there are so many places and ways for a project to get derailed. Uh, it's so easy for that to happen. It is it's a shock one that anything gets made in Hollywood, and two that anything good gets made but there are differences between uh, between the book and the series but what was important to me and to chris and antoine was that all of those changes remain rooted in that foundation of that primal gritty dark violent authentic nature of the novel so um and, and I, I know we accomplished that and a couple times where so maybe some senior executives at amazon were a little nervous uh they to their credit they were awesome and came down on the right side of it every 
time. So I think this is one of those rare instances where the show is not made for a very small audience in Los Angeles or New York. Um, and it's uh, it's made for everybody else, which is uh, which is pretty cool. And, uh, and there's also no product. Like, I think this is one of the only time where there's no like paid product placement uh, because I think they understood right off the bat how important gear was the authenticity of the show and so you'll never see any sort of paid product placement in there it's all just what came naturally and a lot of it is exactly what's in the book and then some things are not just because of what you could get and the prop master could get and that sort of a thing um but some stuff is very specific like the Eccles rifle and getting getting one of those getting a copy of one of those getting a night force scope on there that they don't even make anymore that sort of a thing um and then there'll be some other uh, like the plane we had a pilatus we had the exact pilatus from the book and then like the day before we were going to shoot, the, the people we were renting it from found out that it was going to land on a dirt strip and said negative. So we had to go <laughs> scroll for the last second. So we have a, a great plane, um, but it's not it's not a Pilatus. So there's, there's little things like that. And then there are characters, you know, there are characters that aren't in the book that are in the series. Um, there are characters in the series for Amazon that are like a con conglomeration of two characters kind of put together, um, that sort of a thing. So. But that's just how it goes when you're telling a story visually over an eight-hour period. Uh, you have to figure out really what characters are going to propel that story forward. Uh, and also, big other big change is that it's there is a psychological thriller element that um, that we really uh, it really does work when you tell this story visually. So instead of just being a revenge thriller, it's also a psychological thriller, and both those things uh, really went together well. I you know I laugh because there's a movie there's a show out called right now called The Offer. And it's about the, the making of the Godfather and oh, taking like Mario that. Puzo's popping up in my like uh, Twitter feed or something, I think. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm like, you are Mario Puzo with your, uh, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing you right, with your book and the Hollywood machine. Everything you just said was exactly like in the making of the Godfather. Interesting. I'm not and watch. here he is with his book and he's, and he's there with the producer and with um with with the director and they're redoing the script like you know they're taking the godfather and making it into something for everyone mm. and how they had to deal with the mob and the italian element and it's i mean everything you just said reminds me of it it's, it's worth a, a quick uh, watch on a flight or something like that but yeah the behind the scenes of the hollywood machine yeah, no, it's fascinating. Uh, and what also is fascinating was this, how many people are it takes to make one of these things. And then how many of them are just normal Americans? Because a lot of the times we see somebody get up at the Academy Awards or uh, on the Golden Globes and it's either the actor or the producer or the director. And, uh, you know, they say something that doesn't really resonate with most of America. Um, maybe might be a little disconnect there. And uh, that's people's vision of Hollywood. But really, they on this project. There are 350 other people making it happen and they would come over and they would see me in video village with the other executive producers and stop by and say hey my my son is off on his first deployment tomorrow or hey my daughter's going to boot camp would you mind signing a book and uh other people would stop by and i always had a big box of books with me all the time and i was just signing them and handing them out and then uh people would stop by and talk hunting talk guns talk knives talk land cruisers talk motorcycles talk normal american stuff and uh they all made a point to tell me that they've been on hundreds of sets and none of them has felt like this one, which is really cool. And that's a testament really to Antoine at the top, like the commanding officer up here, setting the tone for the whole project. And then Chris at the tactical level, setting the tone with everybody else and uh, that team working so well together and having it be such a positive working environment for everybody on set was just really cool to see. So uh, I feel extremely fortunate. That's, that's incredible. And, and I was listening to you, I think either talk about it on your podcast or on Andy Stump that 
you you were bringing up that there's going to be differences in the books in comparison to the movies um besides going on people's podcasts for like someone that like myself that read all your books um you know it would come as a surprise if i was actually watching him like oh man hollywood changed it um going on podcasts is that the way you're putting it out or are you like putting it out on twitter or anything that way like fans uh have the ideology that okay it's going to be a little bit different but it's going to be good in in this way because we're combining characters and such i don't know if that question made sense no i think jack uh locked Froze up on how us. to do that for Oh, you there? Yeah, we're yep, here. We got you. We got you. Yeah, yeah no, I've been thinking about that for uh, for a while, really. The, the whole time that we were filming, I was thinking, hey, how am I going to gonna frame this uh, to uh, a, a fan base, a readership that either is really invested, but also wants it to be exactly like the book, uh, knowing that, hey, it's not going to be uh, as uh, just because you're telling a story through a visual medium. So there are going to be changes, uh, mm -hmm. of course. Um, but but I, and how to talk about that. So I've been trying to weave that into podcasts, into interviews, into uh, to radio interviews, uh, into posts. I do these terminal list Tuesdays where Amazon gave me a bunch of photos to drop every Tuesday and uh, and talk about it in there a little bit. Just kind of, you know, let people know that it's going to be different and and that's OK. Uh, that's okay with me uh, because of the way it was done and way those changes are rooted in that foundation of the novel. So uh, I think we, I think we pulled it off and I think it's really cool in that it, the surprises will still be surprises for people who've read the book. And then also the other way, if you see the show first and go the other way and then read the book, then you'll have a surprise going that way as well, or a couple. So I, so I think it really complements uh, they complement one another, kind of like first blood, the book, first blood, the movie, very different, uh, 10 years apart. Um, this is the 50th anniversary of the publication of first blood. And, uh, that book is very different than the movie. And so I just knew that, Hey, you can still make a film adaptation that is awesome and have differences. So if someone wants to go through and just, just point out the differences between the book and the show, like, yes, <laughs> you can do that. Uh, or you can enjoy it for what it is and know that all those changes are rooted in the foundation of that novel. So, um, so I, I think it's a better, better way to go about it. I love that you bring up the first blood all the time. That is like, I I've read the book and my brother snuck me in there when I was a kid. So I saw oh, wow. it in the movie. So I was like, I, you know, there is differences between that first book and between, you know, the movie. So it's, you know, just expect it. Uh, one thing I do want to bring up, though, is your books, is I love paper books. I love them more for social media and showing people that the books out there. But the audiobooks, Ray Porter puts me into this world. He puts me in the zone. So, you know, one of my one of my things and, you know, is just rocking, throwing a rock on and listening to the books, listening to audiobooks, And you feel like you're you feel like you're the protagonist. You feel like you're in his shoes. The audiobook production, that must be a pretty interesting experience as well. You know, getting with Ray. I mean, is, is it just kind of at this point, it's like, hey, bro, here's the book. Do it. Or what was that like, you know, picking well, up that Ray in the beginning? Yeah, at first, you know, I, I'm not an audiobook person. I'm a physical book person. Uh, so I knew really nothing about audiobooks. And it was before the first book came out. And it was Friday, uh, early afternoon, uh, maybe just before noon. And Simon Schuster reached out and sent me an audio clip of someone that they recommended read the novel. Uh, and I listened to it and it was not right. 
uh, person and it's just, he sounded very, very old. So I sounded like Santa Claus. And I was like, this is not the right person. And I said, can I pick somebody else? And they emailed back. Yep. Just let us know by the end of the day. And I was like, oh, because in New York, for anybody who knows publishing, they take their weekends, vacations very seriously back there. Uh, so I was like, oh, geez. So I was on the clock and then I went to Audible and I just started listening to those samples, you know, those 30 second or minute samples, whatever they have on there. And uh, and I started listening and I started listening, 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 listening. And I found Ray Porter. And then I went, I was like, oh, this this is I think this is the guy. And then I listened to another sample that he'd done and then another and then another and then another. And then I wrote Simon Schuster. I said, hey, how about this Ray Porter guy? And I had no idea that he was at the top tier of uh, audio narrator, audiobook narrators. No idea. I just liked his voice. And uh, they wrote back and said, yeah, I guess we can ask him. And uh, they asked him and he said yes. And whew, how lucky was I? I had no idea that he brought an entire fan base with him that follows him from project to project. I had no idea. I just liked liked how he sounded. And then we got to meet up in New York. It was up uh, for Audiobook of the Year in, uh, in, for 2018. So we met up there and put on the tuxes. And, and it was up there with Stephen King and Ruth Ware. So it didn't it didn't win. But uh, but Ray Porter has won since for Audiobook uh, of the Year. Um, and uh, and what a fantastic guy. What an amazing guy. So we just become, become great friends over the years. And uh, I've had him on the podcast twice now. And uh, yeah, he knocks it out the park people love his narration and he does a fantastic job with these so boy do i feel lucky um before rob asks his question ray you are always welcome on the protectors podcast all right there you go yeah and and actually i was my next question was actually about ray porter or even more of a statement like I, this is gonna sound very grunt like uh and i don't read physical books like i'm I'm more of the mindset of I got a lot of things going on. Sitting down and reading a book takes a little bit of time. I love audiobooks. I love podcasts. That's that's just the way my brain's wired. I fall asleep when I read books. I'm not saying I'd fall asleep reading yours, but Ray Porter, yeah. the way he changes voices and is able to enunciate words in uh, either like an, a Russian accent or in an American accent going back and forth from like Jack Reese to like a female character, almost like his, his voice is so good. It's so like trying to try and think of the exact word, but it, it gets you so involved in the, the, the characters that today I went back and, and re-listened to parts of uh, the last novel devil's hand just to double check myself. That it was only one narrator that's how good he is. Like he convinces you that there's more than one narrator. Yeah, no, he's a and such a great guy. He knocks out of the park every single time. And uh, uh, yeah, just a, a dear friend now. So I think yeah, audiobooks are the fastest growing segment of publishing. And yeah. uh, and uh, yeah, I think it doesn't show any any signs of slowing down. That's for sure. And I think a lot of people like my kids. That's uh, I've read to them since they were little kids in the crib since their first day home. But you know they're not they're not readers. And uh, they have all these distractions today. So I think audiobooks might be their essentially their gateway to reading to eventually um, becoming a, a, building their own libraries and having physical books around and that sort of a thing, because we certainly have enough books here. Well, they actually can never have enough books, but we have a lot of books around. Uh, and uh, so I think audiobooks might be their gateway. Books and guns and uh, hats. Yeah. And knives. You can never have too many knives. Yeah. yeah. You know, you mentioned going to an awards uh, thing before and, you know, you and I and a lot of books, you mentioned books and having that New York Times bestseller tag in front of your name. When you first when you first became New York Times bestseller, 
that must have been like that must have blown your mind. I mean, yes, you've been a Navy SEAL. Yes, you've done a, a, a combat tours. You've done so much, but that must have been like someone growing up and always like, wow. Let's talk about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I couldn't. I look at my face. I'm super. I'm just super smiling right now, just remembering when I got the the call on it. And I actually, I was jumping on another call. I had this. I won't even say who it was with, but uh, this crazy call I was jumping on, and then the phone rang, and I was like, "Oh, Emily Bessler." And I, I grabbed it, and, and she told me, and then I hopped back on this video thing that I had to had to do. And uh, yeah, it was. It, I could not, I'm just looking at me. I'm just thrilled. I'm still thrilled uh, about it. So um, yeah, it's just. Fantastic, because you grew up reading all those. Got reading David Morrell and and uh, Nelson DeMille and AJ Cornell and Jesse Pollock and Mark Olin and Tom Clancy and seeing all those names on the New York Times list and all the books that New York Times bestselling author. And as a kid, I just thought, okay, one day that'll be that'll be me. And uh, I'm gonna write books like this that have that magic, have that heart. Um, and uh, this is what I want to do after my time in the military. So to uh, to hit that and then have the other two books hit right after that, like the, yeah. the hit and the other two uh, that were already out, jumped back on the list or jumped on the list and. That was just crazy. So uh, yeah, I feel so fortunate. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, I mean, it, it seems trite to say a dream come true, but it, it really, really no, was. no, it's I, I get goosebumps thinking about it. like you're they getting that because you know one thing about you is you're relatable. You're like a real person. You're not. I know. I believe me. I've been in academia for a while. I've I've seen the the people who like their whole life is just. When they were a kid, they got this and kept getting polished. And, you know, the New York Times bestseller is one of these things. And it's like seeing someone like a regular guy doing it. It's really cool. And that also brings me up to the regular guy thing. It's like when you first, the first book, did you do the the typical query process? No, I didn't know I had to. I didn't even know what that was. just wanted to write the best book I possibly could. And I didn't really know. I mean, I, I guess maybe agents were, I mean, I knew maybe something that maybe you had an agent or something, but, but uh, it certainly wasn't at the forefront of my mind. All my bandwidth was into writing the book. I wasn't thinking about websites. I wasn't thinking about social media. I didn't have any, um, wasn't coming from a place where I knew anything about marketing or advertising. I had no idea what that. I didn't even know that side of publishing existed for an author. I thought that you just sent the book to New York and I could come up here to the mountains and live in a cabin and write and then send off the book and then start the next one, um, which you could have gotten away with maybe 30 years ago, but certainly not today unless you are an outlier. Um, today, if you want to build that readership, you have to be engaged. That authenticity piece is so important to everything that we do. It doesn't not just in publishing, but uh, across the board, industry wide. Um, you have to have that authentic touch point with your audience. That engagement. People want to know who's behind that company. Who's uh, you know, who, who are they talking to you on the other end of that uh, that tweet? Or uh, they just want to have that connection because now you can connect with that audience. You couldn't have done that in 1985, 65, uh, 75, 95. Yeah, you could shake a hand at a book signing. You could maybe at a book fair or something like that. But other than that, that's the only chance that you had to say thank you to your audience. And now I can say thank you on social media. Uh, at night, I'm always trying to just hit that heart button on Instagram or on Twitter and say thank you uh, to everybody because uh, that's the reason that I can do what I'm doing and what I love to do uh, is because someone took a risk on me and told a friend and or told a friends uh, and maybe that's five people or 35 million or anything in between so i try to try to still say thank you to as many people as i, I possibly can before i finally pass out at night because uh it's uh, it's sincere and, and i sincerely appreciate all everybody's support so so speaking on like the actual like production of a book um and your your writing process 
When it comes to the redacted statements, I, I heard you recently talk about that, um, you know, some of the things are redacted and then eventually they're unredacted and you're able to release them in print form. Have you ever just a random thought here, thought of like fake naming places or like does does that take away from like the authenticity of what you're trying to produce or what's, I, yeah. I guess, yeah, like you're trying to produce something that's more authentic. And then I guess my follow on question to that is like, what does that process look behind the scenes where you're turning it over to SOCOM or you're turning it over to the agency for them to vet it to see if it can go through? Well, that's first, it's completely ridiculous and antiquated because you know, <laughs> uh, these admirals and generals who get on uh, Sunday morning talk shows, there's nothing that um, prevents them from saying anything other than them thinking, oh, should I say this or should I not? There's no process there. Um, there's nothing about a podcast. There's but there are, there's something in place for, for books. Um, and yes, I have fake named plenty of things that are redacted, uh, that were redacted. I had, uh, one that was eventually unredacted is, uh, I had James Reese go to Morocco. I put a CIA black site in Morocco. I've, I've been to Morocco, but it was well before I was in the military. Uh, it made sense for my character to go there from Mozambique in the second book. So, and I love Morocco when I was there and I just could think back and I can still tell you about the sights and the sounds and the smells and all of that. So I wanted to incorporate that into, into the novel. And like I said, it made sense geographically for my, for my story. Uh, so I made up a black site and I talked about the Atlas Mountains and I talked about Moorish architecture um, and they redacted it. So I put fake stuff in and it gets redacted and I put stuff in that is completely, uh, well, it, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the process, which will, which will shed a little bit of light. So uh, process wise, just want to make sure I was doing the right thing. So close to my time in the military. So submitted the first one and they took out like nine sentences or something like that. So I said, okay, fine. So I just took those out. Um, and second one, they took out 54, 54 sentences or paragraphs or words anything something like that so 54 and at this point i i kept my lawyers on and then appealed because you have six months to appeal or three months or something like that and uh, we tied each and every one of those redactions to a publicly available government document so mm -hmm. i'm not giving up anything secret and people think navy seals no secret stuff all we do is go kick doors in in the middle of the night and grab you out of your bed and drag you back for interrogation and then go do it again like there's not every single big city SWAT team in the United States is going to do that very same thing tonight. Um, if we get shot out, we can level your building with an AC-130. So that, that's a little different. But once again, not secret. Um, so it, it's very odd that uh, this goes to the uh, Office of Prepublication and Security Review, and they take things out that are not just in the public domain, but available from the government of the United States. So my lawyers tied each and every one of those redactions to a publicly available government document from United States of America. Anyone in the world of any citizenship can go to the different websites, download something, view something on a United States official government website. And we tied each and every one of the redactions to that um, and one on 37 of them. So they didn't let me win on a few, even though they were all tied to publicly available government documents. So then you can, you can go to True Believer in particular, and you can look at the hardcover, see what they redacted, look at the paperback, see what was unredacted and, you know, make your own judgments from there. But you know, it's government. So what did they just tell us by unredacting Morocco? Well, they told us that there's a CIA black site in Morocco. I mean, <laughs> I just want to, it's so ridiculous. I, I almost don't have words. I don't have words. They're, yeah, okay, I'm going to remain kind. Um, yeah. Uh, but then your third one, I, I submitted that one, same thing, tied everything that they redacted uh, to a publicly available government document through my lawyers. And then they didn't let me appeal that one. So I took that as 
AKA quit, quit, um, quit wasting our time with this fiction stuff. So, uh, so I don't uh, submit anymore. Okay. V very interesting. Like that as, as a fan and, you know, someone that, um, you know, did, uh, I did battalion level special operations for, for the army. Like I was in a sniper and recon unit myself and we had classified missions that we went on, not at the level of seals, but it's just interesting to see that stuff. And then I have like, I've kind of like a deeper question for you. Um, so I've heard you in the past talk about, um, ramifications of, uh, grabbing or eliminating targets on on mission when we used to send our sniper hides or our recon hides we would talk about that quite a bit and we would talk about you know yes we're eliminating a potential insurgent or we're capturing that insurgent to bring in for interrogation and we used to always talk about like in 2003 2004 what are what are the long-term ramifications of this like are we actually creating more insurgents being at the level that you were, is there anything that comes to mind that could have been done differently to curve future insurgency? Um, like what, what's your thoughts on that? If that makes sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. Different in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's why you have to study the, uh, everything about the area in which you're about to commit United States forces. Um, you can go back in the history books and you can take lessons out. You can apply them going forward as wisdom. We typically do not do that, but, uh, I assume you're talking about Iraq, um, with, with what you just asked right there. So, yeah, I mean, maybe don't disband the Iraqi army. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, debathification. Maybe don't make ever. And you had to be a bathist to hold any position whatsoever in Iraq. So when you uh, institute this debathification process, uh, well, guess what? Everybody from the garbage man to the prime minister can no longer serve in their roles. So what does that mean? Garbage piles up. It means electricity is not the power plants are not working. Uh, you have to train out people who weren't Bathists um, to then take those roles. So you're starting from zero to build an entire the infrastructure essentially of a country that you just invaded that had semi-workable infrastructure before, but you just took them essentially back to the Stone Age. Um, and they, those those are strategic level decisions that are inexcusable. I mean, if we made tactical level decisions like that, we'd be kicked out of the military, sent home, uh, and certainly never operate again. But you can make those decisions at these senior levels and fail upward. And that has happened time and time again, almost zero accountability over the last 20 years for people in strategic level positions. So, um, so there are certainly a lot of things that we could have done to prevent the insurgency from, uh, uh, from festering and from growing the way it did. And then from making it worse um, uh, by, by continuing to do some of the operations that we did. But hey, once you're in that situation, what are you supposed to do, especially at the tactical level? You know, you're going out there, you're executing your missions, you know, you're up there in your sniper site, you're putting people down that are going out there to put IEDs on heavily ID corners or whatever it, it might be, whatever your mission may be uh, it's not like you're not going to take that person out and put them down um but at, at that point since you've already created this insurgency now now what have you just done I mean, you saved the, the, the route for that day and then you got tomorrow the next day and the next 20 years uh ish so uh there are certainly things that could have been done differently at those strategic levels in particular in both iraq and afghanistan and uh those people who failed the tactical level soldiers um now they're sitting on boards at raytheon and general dynamics you know, Jack, that's a great transition into what I wanted to talk to next. But first, everybody, if you're just joining us, and we're not live right now anyway, but I mean, if you tune in late, who knows? In the blood, coming out, buy it, listen to it.
but leadership. And I, you know, we keep bringing up the Andy Stump interview because you know that's the most recent one we're doing. Because you know, I, I like listening to uh, authors and everybody else before they come on the show, and I, I love Andy's show. But leadership, and you know, as someone who's, and I'm going to say, hey, you know what? I may not know a lot, but one thing I do know is government bureaucracy. As someone who's been a Fed, been in uh, for 22 plus years, and has been in D.C. for about 11 years, and it was really kind of um, felt the wrath of bureaucracy when I used to work for the White House Security Council. I understand the strategic level blunders and how these people move on to their next position. You know, and I understand. I mean, I, I served in Iraq in 06. I was an enlisted guy in the 90s and I was an officer later on. I've been around a lot of different people who have gotten that pat on the back, whether they're a, a captain, a major, or a GS 13, a GS 14. And the pat on the back is like, hey, you know what? As long as you follow me and you don't mess up, you're going to go all the way. So these people make it to the top. And then what they do, is when they retire, they make all their in ways, and they retire, and they're, they're on these boards. They're making the the five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year. You know how much? I can't imagine what a two star or three star is making on these boards. Well, it's even it's even worse than that. It's uh, not just the pat on the back. It's noticing. So there was one. So if you read the Afghanistan papers by Craig Whitlock, yeah. um, I'll get the year and the exact name wrong. But there was a one general. He didn't even do anything. It wasn't even that. Beyond the pale, all he did was say, "Hey, maybe things aren't going so well yeah. in Afghanistan." I think it was 2009, um, and uh, he was quietly removed—not so quietly removed. Actually, it was announced by uh, uh, Bob Gates and I think Petraeus together. But regardless, uh, whoever whoever those two senior level leaders were, so what did that tell everybody else coming up? Well, hey, if I want to uh, get this next star, if I want to continue to fail upward, what am I going to do? party line. And uh, I'm going to say the exact same things that those other guys who didn't get fired said when they were in this seat in front of Congress, which was pretty much the same thing year after year. If you took the, you know, blurred the person's face and took out the year, took the name off, it was the exact same thing. It was, I need more troops. I need more resources. Hey, the, mm -hmm. The, the Afghan National Army or Iraqi security forces, we're meeting our milestones. Uh, we're making great progress. Uh, just need more resources, more this, more that. And that was how it was for essentially 20 years in Afghanistan. And that's how it was during our time in Iraq as well. Um, and this, uh, the Afghanistan papers can't recommend that highly enough because what Craig Whitlock does is he juxtaposes what these guys were saying to Congress, to the troops, to the American people, and what they were saying privately in conversations that they thought were going to remain classified. Uh, and through two lawsuits and Freedom of Information Act requests, those uh, those conversations and recordings were declassified. Those histories of the war were declassified. And Craig Whitlock got to go compare them. And they are 180 out from one another. So uh, that, should, that should tell us quite a bit. And then, of course, we can see what happened in Afghanistan last August. And you can see that rush to failure. We had 20 years to prepare for that. 20 years to prepare for that eventuality and that is the best that we could do and guess who's still in place all those same people at those senior level positions there no one was held accountable when we talk about it in the media um, go back to world war ii and see general george marshall and see we don't know him mostly from the marshall plan you know after world war ii but what was important was what he did before and during World War II in that he took people out of positions that they were not suited for and moved them aside and put people in places. All those names that we know, all those generals and admirals that we know who led us to victory in World War II, guess why they were there? Because George Marshall fired people who couldn't handle it, held them accountable, and 
put people in place to give them a chance to see if they could. And when they could, they stayed. And when they couldn't, they were fired. And after World War II, we lost that accountability. And uh, that essentially, I think there's a direct line between that and what we saw in Afghanistan. I'd like to see who the next emerging leader is going to be that's going to powerhouse the military, powerhouse the government. That's going to be like that. And if they're even going to be able to do it. You know, it's so interesting because I, I commissioned in 99 and so many of my peers are either colonel level at, and doing like something outside of their lane. Um, not to fault them. They don't really have it. You know, they're not going to be a, a, a flag level. They're not going to be a general. And so many of us got out as uh, 0304s. So I'd like to know who's the next emerging person who's going to ride up the ranks and be like that. And do you think they'll even have a chance? We'll see. I mean, right now, most of those people that like you talked about uh, see what's going on. They see, hey, when, I'm, when am I going to tactically lead guys on the battlefield for the last time? Probably as an 04. Uh, and at that 05 level, yeah, you can come back as a leader, but it's more of a manager, even if you're a uh, SEAL team commander, which sounds very impressive, but really you're back in a tactical operations center allocating resources and, and assets and that sort of a thing. Um, but uh, for sure, after that point, well, you're thinking about how do you make 06? How do you make 07? How do you move through those flag level ranks and put more stars on your collar? Um, it becomes a career. And there's definitely a difference between the profession of arms and the career of arms. You never heard anybody say the career of arms. It's a, the profession of arms for a reason. Um, but I, yeah, I wrote an article about Afghanistan. I think it was called Fire the Generals. Um, some people got very upset with me for that. <laughs> hey, guess what? How can you possibly defend the actions of our senior level military leaders uh, after you saw what happened in Afghanistan? 20 years of preparation you have, and that's what you get. And you try to tell me that uh, those people should not be held accountable. Nay, negative, negative. We had 13 Americans going home in caskets and uh, uh, a host of others missing arms and legs and in wheelchairs for the rest of their life, not to mention traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress from being put in a tactically disadvantageous position when we held essentially the high ground. And by high ground, I mean hold, held a tactically advantageous position at Bagram. And uh, you didn't need any, you don't need any touch points with the military or military history. You don't need any sort of fancy degrees after your name. All you need to do is apply a little common sense, which is what von Klauschwitz said was the most important attribute of a battlefield leader having common sense. Interestingly enough, George Marshall said the same thing. Yeah. Um, I personally think I saw a shift on the battlefield just in our, our tactics and what we were doing out there in comparison in 2003 and 2004 in, in comparison to like going overseas in uh, 2009, 2010, just our, our missions and just the, our rules of engagement were so want to say not even handicapped but held back to the point where we ran the risk of more you know men and women getting hurt and killed and it just progressively has gone worse as i got out of the military and watched my friends stay in and then you know as as both of you were talking about with the leadership aspect it's it sucks because you see good men and women get so frustrated with the process of what's going on in the military and they end up getting out and choosing other professions. And then you have people that are just pushing their way through the ranks. And, you know, they were the same people that were, you know, E2s, E3s or O1s, O2s that I'm trying to think of how to say this and kind of be PC. Fuck it. They, they were shit bags. Like they, they were people that probably didn't deserve to like move up the ladder. And it's almost like they just played the game to, to move their way. 
their way up. And then you have good leaders that got out to do other things. Yep. I think it's, uh, it's, it's fairly common and, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough, it's a tough situation to deal with, but those rules of engagement, I mean, they're, they're theater rules of engagement is why I don't place all the blame on, uh, uh, on, on politicians and elected elected officials, um, because the theater rules of engagement remained fairly constant. Uh, it was the interpretation of those rules of engagement by senior level commanders in theater that, uh, that changed over the years. So um, even though the exact verbiage might have been, been exactly the same between those deployments that you mentioned, the interpretation of them by commanders in the field shifted. Uh, and why did they shift? Uh, well, we, we can all go back to that politics side of the house. So there's a line there as well. But uh, but the actual inherent right to self-defense, uh, to defend your unit, like that is always in place. Um, but, but when you start interpreting these rules of, uh, rules of engagement because, of, because you want to make that next rank or something along those lines, well... Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's unforgivable. But while writing my novels, it's very therapeutic. If uh, if you haven't noticed, because uh, very, oh, uh, we've noticed. Believe me. Yeah, and you know, that, you know, Jack brings us life because you know you'd go to prison. Um, but uh, but I can do it in the, in the thriller. It's uh, it's very therapeutic for me. Well, you know, that is one that is one thing you brought up a, a lot of valid points about leadership. Definitely agree with you. And if I ever run for Congress, I believe what Jack Carr just said. But hey, um. Here's the reality, and this is one thing I want to change. Should run for Congress. Yeah, maybe someday. You know, they don't want, they can't handle the truth. Or should I say, you ever see my t shirt? I should have worn it tonight. It says, I have a t shirt that says Rambo 24, and then the bottom it says, Nothing is over. I got to get you one of those. I can't believe I didn't send you one of those. It's like the best thing. Fantastic. But, you know, one thing about your the transition is, you know, we do have a lot of frustration with politics. We do have a lot of frustration with everything that's happened, especially those of us who have served or been around those that have served or supported this service member, but it's a new class. I think, I don't think we have a weak class anymore. I think a lot more people are stepping forward, men and women to become a warrior class. And I think that's what your, your characters resonate so much is because you're writing it, but then you're doing it. You're hunting, you're shooting the people you associate yourself with. I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the word, but I like it. Tribe. Your tribe, they're all doing things to become self-reliant and to also support others. I think what we've seen over the past 20 years is a, a different shift, you know, and this probably, you know, first you had the influencers, you know, the bro vets and all this other stuff background 2012, 2013, past four or five years and, and getting better is more people supporting each other and more people becoming a warrior class getting our our physical bodies in shape understanding if something does collapse the energy goes out for 72 80 90 100 hours you could rely on yourself and i like seeing that your these characters especially reese you could relate you may not be a former whatever i'm a former just leg infantry dude and a fed i'm not anything special but i relate because i'm like you know what this is a different type of class. It makes me look around my office and I'm like, okay, I need to learn how to hunt. I need to shoot better. I need to do this. And I really, I like what you're doing on the outside of the books, but connected to the book. So let's talk about, you know, you do a lot with SIG. You're doing a lot of hunting. You're doing a lot of showing people and saying, hey, you know what? And I'm bringing it back to the common man factor again. If I could do it, you can do it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just me sharing a little bit of the journey uh, with people. And I think it goes back to why this character has resonated. And it's yes, because yeah, yeah I have some background and I, the technical details on sniper weapon systems and, and that sort of a thing, you know, that'll be that'll be on, spot on. But uh, really the feelings and emotions behind different things that I was involved with downrange, I think it's made that first one stand out and the others as well. But the first one, there's nothing else to compare it to at Simon & Schuster. Something made that stand out to them. And uh, so I don't have to go and interview somebody who was ambushed in Baghdad or I don't have to go find a sniper in Ramadi from 2006 and ask them what that felt like or what was that like and then have their answer get filtered through whatever preconceived notions and biases I have, other interviews maybe I've conducted, other movies I've seen or books I've read, and then taking all of that and applying it to a fictional narrative. Uh, no, it comes directly from me. Uh, what did it feel like to do those jobs? Uh, and I'm not talking about exactly what happened in those situations, but let's say my character gets ambushed in Los Angeles, California. I can remember what it was like to get ambushed in Baghdad, and I can take mm -hmm. that, those feelings and emotions and apply them to a totally fictional narrative directly. There's nothing that it has to pass through. There's no filters. It goes right in. So I think that really made it made them stand out. But now um, now today, they continue, I think the character continues to resonate because of something you said right there about being on a journey. Uh, and uh, he's on a journey. James Reese is on a journey. It's not the same person that's picked up and just dropped in a semi-similar but different situation uh, that he's going to solve. And then next one, kind of same thing. No, he's on this journey and he is evolving and he is adapting and learning and taking the lessons from successes and failures and applying them forward as wisdom, just like we all are. So I think that journey, whether it's through one book or through the whole series, uh, that character on a journey just like each and every one of us is in real life makes these novels stand out to readers as well and resonate with them and then on like the social media side of the house or the things that i that i share i'm just sharing that journey and trying to add value to people's lives um that's why you never see me just post a meme or, or something else like that because uh people have trusted me with that time and whether they're listening to the audiobook for like 14 hours or they're reading the book for however long that takes or they just trusted me by following me on instagram i'm gonna swipe through real quick after a few seconds still seconds you will never get back or they're going to read the whole post and think about it. And maybe it's a long one and maybe it takes a minute or two to read it and digest. Well, once again, that minute or two, they're never getting that minute or two back. And they've trusted me with that time. So that's something I take very seriously. So I, I have a question. It's actually my co-host on uh, Fight Like Hell. He told me to ask you. Um, he's also read all your books as well. Uh, what was your favorite part about converting the books to the TV series. I know you had said that, that you really were hoping, and this is way before Chris Pratt came into the picture, that you imagine James Reese as Chris Pratt. So it's kind of ironic that he's the star of it, but you know- It's actually the other way around. Other way around. I imagined him playing Chris Pratt, or sorry, Chris Pratt playing James Reese. So I, I'm speaking it backwards. I apologize, but- Difference, that's why. That's why I mentioned it. Yeah, no, no. Thank you for correcting me. But what was your favorite part of converting the book into like a real life series? Learning. I got to learn so much about the whole process and to be involved from the very beginning. And usually they get rid of the author right away because they don't want the author on set yelling. Mm -hmm. you um, but Chris and Antoine linked me up with the showrunner in December of 2019. We had our first conversation then and we've talked every day since to include today. Um, David DeGilio is his name. 
awesome guy. And uh, I learned so much from him over the last couple of years. And in writing that first script, I mean, he, he wrote it. I just advised on it. But really, I just learned. Um, but we got to put that script together. And then he took it with Chris and Antoine. And they took it around and shopped it to Netflix, to Amazon, HBO, Showtime, Hulu, Apple. Uh, and then Amazon and Netflix got in a bidding war over it. And Amazon won. But, uh, but learning about that process, just seeing how you adapt something from uh, the written word here in a novel to the screen, some of the principles that need to apply, some best practices, some lessons learned from the things that he'd done in the past, things that he'd learned from others uh, in the past, uh, and then get to put the writer's room together and advise on all those scripts and see how now you have, let's say, I forget exactly how many people we had now, let's say 10, um, now looking at your material and turning that into, into the other scripts in the series, and then being able to advise on those and seeing how that works, and then seeing how those scripts ended up morphing as we went along, because now you have actors coming in who bring something to the role. And also just like a plan in the military, as you guys know, you're, hey, we're here in our air conditioned mission planning space or in the tactical operations center or, or whatever mission planning area. And it sounds really great. And okay, we're gonna do this, this, okay, snipers up there on that high ground. Okay, here we go, we're gonna put the vehicles in here. Uh, we have some aircraft overhead. Okay, boom, that sounds tight. Let's go do this. And then you get out there and you're like, whoa, okay, that high ground isn't as high as we really thought it was from the photos. Uh, actually, there's something over here, uh, enemy position that might have a line of sight. Anyway, it just changes. Situation terrain dictate. Same thing with scripts. What looked great on paper, uh, even with all that work, uh, when you get out there and you get to the actual place where you're filming it, well, okay, situation terrain dictate there. Then you have these actors who bring something to the role as well. They bring something of themselves to that role. And now that affects episode two, three, four, five, six. So you have to constantly be adapting these scripts. And just like, I don't know if you have the experience with a social media post that you maybe write on Word, if it's a long one, look at it, it looks good. Okay, check, I'm gonna post that tomorrow. You wake up and right before you go to post, you catch like three or four things that uh, that you didn't catch just because psychologically, you know that this is the last chance you get before mm -hmm. it's out there. There's something that shifts in your mind a little bit. And uh, same thing with scripts. I mean, same thing right before those cameras start to roll. You're like, whoa, wait a second. Uh, this is not right, or does this really make sense after what we just changed uh, last episode, which might have been two days ago? Uh, so there's all that stuff. So it's very dynamic, and you have to continually adapt. And I can see what would happen if you had, let's say, uh, a team that wasn't quite working very well together. I can see how easy it is for things to, to go off the rails. And I just got so fortunate that we had such a great team working on this. Um, I'm super excited. I'm super excited for May 17th, Jack Carr and the Blood. Bam! In hot. Yep. Actually, uh, people who have read it say it's their favorite. And uh, and it's certainly the most action-packed. And that was not my intent at the outset. Uh, but it just happened to turn out that way. Um, it is definitely the most action-packed to date. And it has a chapter in there that I just released on my website. I, I just released PDF, the uh, preface, prologue, and first three chapters. And uh, in audio, Sneak Listen was the... Uh, the prologue in the first two chapters. So to read the PDF, you get an extra chapter in there and that's chapter three. And I think that's my favorite chapter that I've ever written. And it's not a gunfight. It's not, uh, it was getting stabbed. Nothing's getting blown up. It's just a conversation between Caroline Hastings, the matriarch of the Hastings family and James Reese. And for whatever reason, uh, that really, it was a powerful chapter and, and stood out to me as, uh, as, as my favorite chapter that I've ever written. I do like the subheading for part two, the protector. There you go. Yo, nice. what's up? Nice. There you go. Everybody, make sure you do check out Jack on, on all his social media platforms. Follow him on Instagram and everything because he 
you do post relevant stuff. Thank you. Especially about guns and stuff. And I do my show you my Border Patrol SIG. Nice. Oh, look at that. Oh, awesome. Look at that, huh? Yeah, what's on the magazine? It's oh, it's this is the way. I like from, it. Uh, and then there's my border patrol stuff in there. Nice. Yeah, good times. Good times. And go. one thing I do want to say is if you are going to buy the book, we love our big box stores. We like all the stuff like Amazon and order and that, but please check out your local shop. Right now, I use the Book Dragon Shop, excellent shop out here in Virginia. But please check out your local bookstores as well. And I do really want to thank Rob. Rob, you got any final thoughts? Uh, I kind of had a final question on um, everything you guys are currently talking about. Uh, I saw you post something on your story, I think like two nights ago, and you were um, out the range shooting holes in pages of the books that I guess you're going to sew back in. How does one purchase one of those? How do we get one of those signed? Like, I really would love to get my hands on one for myself and someone that uh, actually has read all your books as well. That's so awesome. Yeah. So I try to do bookstore only type of a camp. And that was this year gone and typically choose bookstores that I'm not going to on the tour. Cause I try to, I have just such great memories of being in bookstores as a kid, libraries as a kid. Cause my mom was a, a librarian. So, um, so yeah, shot through those and I did, it was cool. Cause months back I had to do a little test cause Simon and Schuster had never done this before. Shockingly enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I shot through different, different uh, amount of pages. They sent me a bunch of pages, the same kind that I would shoot through uh, for that we could sew them back into the novel, but without any title page stuff on it, just to do a test. And so I put them between two uh, uh, pieces of cardboard, wrapped them in, in duct tape, and then shot through with nine mil, with five, five, six, with three and a wind mag, three and a blackout, uh, 53 Lapua, 50 cal pistol, and 50 cal rifle. And, uh, and to see which, and then I sent them all back to Simon and Schuster, and they tested it. They put, See if I have it here. Well, anyway, they gave me a fake book with it in there and it worked and all of them worked. So I picked the one that made the, the biggest hole and uh, went there and they sent me title pages that have the you know, in the blood and all that information on there. Did the same thing, put a stack of 50 at a time and then went and shot and sent those to back to Simon and Schuster. And they sewed those in at, uh, at the binding. And those will come through the independent bookstores that uh, participated uh, a month or so back. So those went, those went quickly. I should have, I should have doubled it up. That's awesome. Well, Jack, I uh, appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate all you do. And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll link up in person soon.